The Fake Show podcast is brought to you by Hash House of Go-Go, the law firm of Hutchison & Stephan, Brew City Brand Apparel, thefoodconnectionlv.com, and by Mr. Antenna. Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 1.44 a.m. today, June 6, 1968. He was uh, 42 years old. The announcement, as read by a medical official at the Good Samaritan Hospital in Los Angeles. It was 50 years ago this week. Bobby Kennedy was shot and killed at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles shortly after winning the California presidential primary. My next guest is Chris Matthews, whose book, Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit, looks beyond that tragedy. Chris, welcome to the show. And by the way, interestingly enough, the JFK classified files finally released. And as a Kennedy scholar like yourself, you must have found some interesting stuff there. Little tidbits, like uh, nothing conclusive. I still think it was Lee Harvey Oswald based upon the circumstance and as Kennedy, Jack Kennedy's advanced man, Jerry Bruno, laid out pretty soon after the assassination that they didn't have the uh, motorcade route set till the day before and publicized. And, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald had that job on the sixth floor of the, the book depository. Uh, on Dealey Plaza, you know, months before that, he had his gun before that. Um, he had tried to knock off General Edwin Walker, a right-wing general, before that, and he thought he was going to, he hoped to go out and shoot Nixon at one point, but Marina Oswald stopped him. Look, I think he did it. I think that Bobby thought he did it. I think that Teddy definitely said that both of the brothers believed that their older, older brother was killed by, uh, by uh, Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone. That said, Bobby had his doubts. I don't know if they were reasonable doubts, but he always wondered whether his going after the mob had something to do with it. He was never quite sure. What I discovered in that pile of paper, I stayed up until at least midnight that night going through it, is, you know, I was wondering how Jack Ruby, the, who killed Oswald right in front of the TV cameras, how he got so close to him. And when I was able to find out that he had sort of a deal, a, a good in with the phrase, with the local police, he had a nightclub, a bit of a sleazy nightclub, and they protected him. So he was sort of in with the cops, so I guess when he shows up with his gun, although they didn't check people, they didn't have wired, they didn't check, uh, you know, for people having guns in those days. Right. He just sort of hanging around with the cops. It's just strange for a guy to be standing in the hallway there and just steps a few feet forward and shoots the guy without any effort. It was just easy. So I was wondering about that. So my answer is sort of been figured out. I saw the answer there. He was just in with the guys, in with the local police. Yeah. You know, it always seemed to me, Chris, that Bobby somewhat lived in Jack's shadow, but he really got things done for him, didn't he? You know, the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and civil rights and things. Exactly. In fact, uh, started working together in 52. He was the henchman. He had to do the dirty work of pushing people into, into line for Jack was always keeping his distance. He'd say, Bobby, go take care of this and keep me out of it. And he had to do the hard work in the 60 campaign of pretty much muscling Governor DeSalle of Ohio to come out for Jack and then doing the same thing with the governor of Maryland. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. You read the book, you're going to get pretty inside stories about what it's like to be in a room with Bobby Kennedy when he wants you to do something. And the same with the southern governors like George Wallace. He muscled those guys. He threatened them with federal troops. He threatened them with, you know, international humiliation. And he integrated those those universities. He protected the Freedom Riders. And as you said, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, when it came down to saving the world from a, a holocaust for the whole country, the whole world, really, he found a way to cut through it by saying, we went to a Russian contact he had and said, why don't we trade the missiles in Cuba for the missiles we have in Turkey? And next thing you know, Khrushchev's coming out for the deal. So 
You know, I, I think he was always central. That's one thing I discovered writing the two books on Jack Kennedy. He was always in the middle with the brains. Did it seem, Chris, that as the 60s began, he was that enforcer type of guy? But as we roll into the mid and later 60s, that Bobby kind of was more of a fighter for the victims. Well, I remember the family gave me a real insight. He was talking about his own father, but he said it, it applied to Jack, and he wanted me to understand it. He said, uh, he said that his dad, who was one of the Kennedy brothers-in-law, he said he spent. A, he's a real tough guy, and he said he spent his early part of his life going after villains. But then he discovered that villains create their own hell on earth. So forget about that, and start focusing on the victims. And I think. Bobby went from worrying about it and basically prosecuting people like Sam Giancana, the mobster, and Roy Hoffa, the mobbed-up union guy, uh, and decided, I'm going to look out for African-Americans and poor white people and, uh, you know, California farm workers and Native Americans. I mean, you got to... It was just... A, it, it, I think part of it was Jack dying uh, and being killed. I think another part of it was... big part of it people don't write about was his own father having a debilitating stroke and he was always trying to prove how tough he was to the old man. And I think when the father faded, he got a lot more liberated to be who he was to start with. A nicer guy. And why are we still f- so fascinated by this this Kennedy family, especially Bobby and Jack, after all of these years? What else have we got? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What else have we got? We got Nixon, we got Johnson, we got Ford. Come on. Uh, you know... Obama had a good moment there. He was very exciting in the beginning, and I think he got a little, he faded a bit in terms of the country. I guess it just happened. He just lost it. He didn't have the connection in the last several years he had in the beginning. Uh, w got us into that war, and I don't think he's ever going to get over that. And this president we have is as problematic as you see. I mean, he's just, he's a divider, not a unifier. He, he, he benefits politically by keeping about 40% of the country angry at the other 60%, and that's the name of his game, and I don't think it's going to change. And unfortunately, it doesn't look good. It may feel good to resentful people, and I understand how it feels good to share his re- apparent resentments towards the establishment, but it's not going to make us very joyous in the end. It's an interesting photograph that you have. I think it's on the back cover of your book with the uh, the train after Bobby was assassinated. And, and all of these people saluting, I, and specifically there was a picture of white working class people saluting the train as it went by, but there were blacks and whites. I mean, he really it really kind of showed how he had brought the country together, didn't it? Well, that's why I wrote the book, that picture. I, I, I used to write for the San Francisco Examiner, and I did a Sunday magazine cover, and and among the photographs they came up with, the artwork, they came up with that picture. This is back in the 90s, I guess, early 90s. And I go, that picture grabbed me because they're not just standing there, these poor white, this poor white family, but they're saluting. They're saluting this patriotic hero. There's the, their compatriot, the guy who they, have the, they share a gut patriotism with. That's gone. That kind of um, affectionate patriotism uh, I guess it was there for Roosevelt when he died. I'm sure it was. The fact that he was just not, not some elected official, not some politician, but some leader, a true leader uh, in this country. And I think, and the black people, the African Americans in places like Philadelphia and Baltimore, by the tens of, there's 20,000, I believe, in Philly, were singing spontaneously the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And I'm sure they learned it at church. They knew the lyrics. And they, uh, they, did, they sang to his body. I mean, it's chilling. 
that kind of uh, almost romantic patriotism. And uh, he just had a way of bringing people together. Have we completely lost that today? Because it seems not... not yeah, I don't know. It, 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 it's something that somebody should, let me put it bluntly, should try to do. <laughs> just try. I mean, I think, I think that Democrats began to look at their wealthy donors and the minorities and Hollywood, and they began to think, oh, that'll work. We'll put together minorities, Hollywood, some unions, and, uh, and we'll put it together, and that'll add up to a majority. And they left out, they discarded the, the people, the Irish, Italian, Polish, Jewish, middle-class people that had sort of built the party over the, over the decades. And those people began to fade first to Reagan, and they faded to Trump. I think they felt discarded. I think, I may be wrong, the next Democratic successful candidate for president will be someone of whatever background who's able to reconnect with the, the working people of both communities. They don't have to unite them, but they got to bring them together politically. And I think if they can't do that, it will be the same old, same old. More Hollywood celebrations and concerts and self-celebration, which drives most working people nuts. They can't stand a Democratic Party that's so proud of itself for being elite. They resent it, and they should. Is there a way to recover, do you think, from the we've all chosen sides these days? Is there a way to come out of that? Well, I think um, it's hard because the fundraising today, which is unfortunately the name of the game for most political people, they spend all day raising money. You have to draw sharp differences with your opponents. Yeah. And so if you're a Democrat, you have to talk about uh, abortion rights and you have a choice, and you have to do it with such vigor that it excites the people and they shake loose their money. You have to say, if we lose this election, the courts will change and we're going to lose, uh, you're going to lose the right to choose and all, and it's the end of the world, so you better give me some money now. Uh, the same with uh, gay rights, I suppose, even now. And so the other side then raises the issue, what about, will they please leave our bathrooms alone? Will they leave our kids alone? Blah, blah, blah. And you'll get that same kind of polarization from the other side. And both sides play it. Uh, President Trump does it. The minute we had this horror in New York the other day, he turned it into an ethnic thing again. Let's go after the uh, Hispanic, uh, the uh, Islamic people again. Not this one guy, but the Islamic people. And uh, there are an awful lot of Islamic people from all around the world who live here now are trying to make their homes here. And to make it always an ethnic thing, whether it's the, going back to the statues of the Confederate generals and raising that issue again. He did it this week as chief of staff. And John Kelly did it, raising that issue again, uh, dividing the country North and South again, the old Civil War wound. I mean, there is politics to be out of it, and it may work sometimes. I do think it helps him with his vote to have a lot of division and anger all the time. But the problem is, down the road, it hurts the country. I only wish we had more time. Chris Matthews' new biography, Bobby Kennedy. Yeah, I uh, Vegas, uh, you guys continue to rebound out there. And I mean, that horror didn't get enough attention in the long run out there, that mass killing out there. And I think 58 people killed. We should have been focusing on that for weeks and months and years. And the trouble today is we go past these things, we move on to the next topic, and we don't learn any lessons. The town is is doing a lot, and uh, it has been quite gratifying and eye-opening at how Las Vegas itself reacted to this. It's been actually quite heartening. I hope so. I love yeah. that. Thank Chris, you. Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. It's available now on Amazon. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. 
Jim, thanks for your time. And by the way, there is a great docu-series on Netflix about Bobby Kennedy called Bobby Kennedy for President. It includes modern-day interviews with, among others, Representative John Lewis, activist Dolores Huerta, Paul Schrader, RFK's labor advisor, and Juan Romero, the former busboy who knelt by Kennedy on the kitchen floor of the Ambassador Hotel where Kennedy was shot. That brings us to the end of this episode of The Fake Show. Thanks, as always, for listening. I'm Jim Tofty, and I'll see you back here next time. Take The Fake Show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes.